Thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come and my righteousness will be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this and the son of the man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not, not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the foreigner who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be his servants. Everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it, and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain, and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all people. The Lord God, who gathers the outcasts of Israel, declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And, her, and his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Lord, as we open your word today, I pray that uh, you would open our eyes, our ears, to hear from you what it is that you'd say to us from your word. And Lord, as we um, meditate on these words from your gospel that may seem harsh, um, that you would give us understanding of what it is uh, that's going on. In this story. And I pray, Lord, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing to you, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. My name is Chris Myers. I'm one of the priests here. Um, and today we call Promotion Sunday. Um, and it's Promotion Sunday in two senses. The first is that the kids level up grades. So here's what I'm going to say to you parents. If you have school-age children, congratulations. You did it. You survived the summer. Um, many of you went back to school this week, and many of you are going back to school uh, this week. And the second reason we call it Promotion Sunday is we highlight our teams and some of the ways that you can volunteer and get connected here at uh, St. Bart's, so we'll be talking about that in a minute. My daughter actually asked me last night if today was Commotion Sunday, which I thought was an even better name for what we're doing here. So maybe next year we'll call it Commotion Sunday. Um, so we have these scriptures before us, and as we get into them, I want you to think about uh, this idea that sometimes surprising things cease to be surprising. So 
something at once that you experienced as shocking or surprising or out of the ordinary over time becomes unsurprising to you, um, overly familiar. So this could be something maybe slightly trivial, like the twist ending of a movie. The ending of The Sixth Sense is no longer a surprise, and if it is to you, the Statue of Limitations is over. Um, or the fact that something like D-Day actually worked. That's pretty shocking, that the invasion of Normandy actually turned the tide of the war. We take it for granted looking back at it, but it's actually surprising that it worked. That can happen with the gospel, too. That can happen with our faith, is that there are things that are absolutely surprising and shocking about our faith that become overly familiar. The resurrection, I think, is the great reversal of all time. Um, it's the great surprise of all time that moving through death back into life, Jesus is raised from the dead and vindicated as the true king, the true savior of the world. That's a great surprise. And in our passages today, we're reminded of an even greater surprise, or not a greater surprise, but a great surprise in its own right. And I can sum it up um, the way that Paul sums it up in Romans 15, verses 8 and 9. And this is what Paul says, For I tell you that Christ became a servant of the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Why is that surprising? Christ, that word means anointed one. The other word for it is Messiah. The surprise is this, is that Israel's Messiah is the Savior of all peoples. Not just the Jews, but the Gentiles too. And the reason that this is surprising to us is because we forget that we're Gentiles. <laughs> we forget our Gentileness. It's invisible to us that we've been included in the covenant that Christ came for us. And these two uh, passages, the first from Isaiah and the second from the Gospels, give us these two powerful um, instances of people who you would expect to be excluded who suddenly become included. And that they come in, become included within Israel's story, not despite Israel's story. So the prophet Isaiah gives us the jarring image of the eunuch in the temple. Again, maybe that's not a shocking image to you, but it would be to Isaiah's hearers. And the gospel passage from Matthew gives us the image of the Canaanite woman. And this story can't help but shock because Jesus calls her a dog. And what do we do with that? So let it shock you, let it surprise you so we can sit with it and remember that God has included us in his promises, and in his story of salvation. So in Isaiah 56, we have this prophecy, and you can turn to it. It's on page 3 of your bulletin. Thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come and my righteousness be revealed. This all sounds very you know, straightforward, prophetic kind of poetry. But then in verse 3, it says, Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. Well, our expectation would actually be that the foreigner would be separated from his people, that there was a sharp division between God's promised people and those who are outside of that. And yet, the story of the Old Testament gives us these surprising reversals of that. Rahab, Ruth, Uriah the Hittite, Naaman the Syrian, 
And here, a very unexpected person include the eunuch. Now, I'm not going to talk a lot about eunuchs. Um, if you're interested, the rest is history has a podcast episode called History's Top Ten Eunuchs. Um, so you can go listen to that if you want to know more about eunuchs. But the point here is that a eunuch would not have the expectation of being fruitful and having children. And what does God say, what does the Lord say to the eunuch? To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold my fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. That is unexpected. That is a surprise. First and foremost, because based on the law itself, the eunuch should not be part of the ritual worship of Israel. And even more so because of this promise of something better than sons and daughters. That to be part of the covenant people of God is to have an everlasting name. To be joined to the people of Abraham is to participate in the blessing that God promised to Abraham, that I will make your descendants outnumber the stars, and that through your seed, your offspring, all the nations of the world will be blessed. That's the gospel. That we are blessed, that we Gentiles are blessed because God made a covenant with Abraham. That God chose this one man and that through that blessed the whole world because Jesus was in that line. And he's the blessing to all nations. The end of this prophecy of Isaiah probably may have rung a little bell in your mind because in verse 7 it, uh, it says, These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. And this is the part that might be familiar to you. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. That's what Jesus says when he cleanses the temple. My house, the temple, will be a house not just for Jews, but for all peoples, all the Gentiles, all the nations. When Jesus cleanses the temple, the part of the temple that he cleanses is called the court of the Gentiles. So one way to think of what Jesus is doing is it's not just that the money changing is corrupt, though it is, it's that they are taking up space that does not belong to them. They're taking up space that belongs to the nations. That God, his, his intention was to gather the nations to him in his presence at the temple. That's a surprise. And yet Jesus reminds us of it by saying, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. So we have the surprise of the eunuch. As one translator puts a verse from this passage, let not the eunuch say, why, I am a withered tree. God says, no, you're not. You're a fruitful tree. How? By being part of my covenant people by faith. Which brings us to Matthew 15 and the Canaanite woman. So you can flip over to that in page 5. Here we have this contrast between Jew and Gentile raised to its highest fevered pitch. It's not just a Jew and a Gentile, it's a Jew and a Canaanite. Matthew is careful 
to call her a Canaanite, whereas in Mark, she is called a Syrophoenician woman. Matthew says she's a Canaanite. Who are the Canaanites? Well, they were the ones who occupied the land and were driven out because of their false worship, because of their corrupt pagan practices, and they were driven out by someone named Joshua. Jesus is Joshua's namesake. And here, a Canaanite stands in front of the new Joshua and asks for mercy. This is surprising. Because Joshua's and Canaanites don't usually get along. And what does she say to him? This is surprising too. Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. Who's the son of David? The Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one, promised to who? Israel? But she is begging for mercy from him as a Canaanite. So I want you to hear this. She's not crying out to a generic holy man or the shaman of the weak. She's crying out to the Lord, the son of David. She has an insight. And this is an absolutely astonishing thing for a Canaanite to say. And Jesus' initial response is shocking because his initial response is no response at all. He just keeps walking. And she keeps crying. And the disciples say, will you just please send her away? Because when it says she cried out, this was not a one-time cry out. She was continuing to cry out, begging for mercy for her child, begging for mercy from the son of David. So it moves from silence to rebuke, and then he delivers the coup de grace. It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Ouch. What do we do with this? Now, there's all sorts of ways that people have tried to explain this away. Um, and I don't know if I have a good explanation, other than we know that we know Jesus' character, we know his intention is mercy. Some people want to say that Jesus was just grumpy that day. <laughs> he had a long day of ministry and he was tired. I don't think that that befits the Son of God <laughs> to say that. Um, but one way to think about it is that the passage itself is set up for these two characters to play the stereotypical role of a Jew and the bad Gentile Canaanite. And that there's a sense in which they fall into their roles. And almost in a sense, based on her response, it's like she knows that Jesus is kind of winking at her. I don't know if that's exactly right, but maybe it is. Because her retort is something like someone who knows that she's in on the joke. Because for her, a crumb is enough. She, dis she embraces the description of herself as a dog. But what happens in the, the Greek of the story is that she calls herself a little dog. This is not a dog that's outside the house. This is a dog that's in the house. And not just in the house, but under the table. So what does she acknowledge but that the Lord is the Lord, and that the Lord is the Lord of the table, and in acknowledging that, she acknowledges that the crumbs from that table are sweeter, fairer than the greatest feast at any other table. In a way, she's echoing what the psalmist said when he said, I would gladly be a doorman in the house of the Lord than dwell in the tents of the wicked. It says something about the greatness of the Lord. Does it, get, does it take the sting out of the passage? Probably not. 
I think we're meant to sort of uncomfortably sit with what Jesus is saying here. But we have to acknowledge the beauty and the depth of her faith. And what this surprising story helps remind us is that we are God's people, and that's unexpected. We are basically Canaanites. We're the dogs too, and yet we have been included. So what does it mean for us to call ourselves the people of God? Again, most of us are, to use the language of the New Testament, Gentiles. I don't think any of us go around self-describing ourselves as Gentiles. Hi, I'm a Gentile. But we are. We are those who were not part of the covenant, but who have been included into the covenant. And the reason that this is so is because the gospel has gone forth out into the world and is even now going to the ends of the nations. The nations. Gentiles. Us. That the promises of Israel become promises to us because of Jesus. So maybe these stories, the eunuch in the temple and the Canaanite woman, can remind us of the astonishing fact that God has included us in his promises by means of Israel's Messiah. That's exactly what Paul was saying at the very beginning. Romans 15, 8 and 9. I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised, the Jews, to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. And in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. And again, we must remember that the Canaanite woman calls Jesus the son of David. She recognizes, maybe just in seed form, that Israel's Messiah, the Christ, the son of David, that God promised to David that one of his descendants would rule on a throne forever, is actually the Savior of the world and has something to bless Canaanites and Gentiles too. And it's surprising that the way that he brings his blessing to us is by fulfilling Israel's covenant. This is another surprise, that the particular leads to the universal. What do I mean by that? One man, Abraham, one promise to him becomes the blessing to all nations through Jesus, his son. And what that makes us, or what we're called into as a response to that, is to be a people of humility. Because we don't deserve a place at the table. We don't. In his mercy, he includes us, but we don't deserve a place at the table. And the more that we think we deserve our seat at the table, the more we will ignore those who are not yet at the table, or worse, actively seek to exclude them. Because we think we earned our place, but we didn't. So we need to invite those. They don't deserve it either. We didn't either. But there's mercy to spare. The Catholic bishop, Robert Barron, was talking about this passage, and he used this image of walls and bridges. And I'm just going to straight up steal this from him (laughs) because it was so helpful for me. He says that to be the church means we have to have both walls and bridges. What are the walls? Well, the walls are what God has said, the covenant itself, what God has revealed in his words, what we would say 
is codified in the creeds, the truth of what it means to be part of the people of God, that there is a distinction, that we believe things that other people don't believe, that we acknowledge things like the two natures of Christ and the Trinity that define who we are as a people, and we need those walls. But we also need bridges so that people can come in. We need ways to reach out, to go out, so that there's a way in to the structure. And this is what he said that was so helpful and challenging to me. And I want you to think about this. If the church is nothing but walls, then no one can get in or out. And the point becomes about preserving the walls. And he said that that is the temptation of the conservative. To be nothing but wall builders and wall protectors and wall defenders. But then there's no way, way in. But similarly, if the church is nothing but bridges, where are you leading people? If there's no structure, if there's no distinction, that this is what we believe, this is who we are, this is what we do, this is what we don't do, then in the end, then there's nothing extraordinary about the gospel. It's kind of a bridge to nowhere. I'm okay and you're okay is not good news. It's not. We should be out on the lake on a paddle boat if I'm okay and you're okay. <laughs> we don't need to be here. We don't need to be reminding ourselves that we don't deserve our place at the table, and yet we have been included. And what Robert Barron said is that to build nothing but bridges is the temptation of the liberal. So there's a temptation of the conservative to build nothing but walls, and there's a temptation of the liberal to build nothing but bridges. And guess what? We need both. We need the structure, and we need the bridges. We need the way in, but we also need to de define what we're inviting people into. We need both. So we have clarity about who we are and what we believe, but then we have a posture of compassion towards those people who don't yet share those beliefs. Creating a hospitable environment where people can ask questions about it, try those things on, figure out what it means to believe those things, what it means to behave in the way that God has asked us to behave. To invite others to the table. The story of the Canaanite woman is preserved in the Anglican tradition in a very particular way. One of the most famous prayers of the Book of Common Prayer is called the Prayer of Humble Access. And we say this prayer during um, the season of Lent. How does the prayer go? We do not presume to come to this your table, O merciful Lord, trusting in our own righteousness, but in your abundant and great mercies. And here's the line. We are not so much worthy as to gather up the crumbs under your table, but you are the same Lord whose character is always to have mercy. That's it precisely. <laughs> we don't deserve our place at the table. A crumb would be enough. And why is it that a crumb is enough? The story immediately after the Canaanite woman's story is the feeding of the 4,000 where God can take a piece of bread and feed a multitude. And that is the promise of this table, is that God feeds us with himself and that he promises to meet us here. There's a sense in which the Canaanite woman points us to this table, to our response as we come forward, and I say this all the time, our posture in communion is this, 
We do not take it, we receive it. Because we can't feed ourselves. That's why we pray the Lord's Prayer as part of our communion. Give us this day our daily bread. That's a beggar's prayer. I can't feed myself. I cannot give to myself what I actually need. But who are you, Lord? You are the one whose character is always to have mercy. So that I can find my place at the table. That's why this table enacts what it is to be the church. Because we are fed here and nourished here as the body of Christ, with the body of Christ, to then go into the world to be the body of Christ so that there could be a bridge in. We need that nourishment. We need that reminder. We need that encounter with him. And we need that posture of humility. We are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under your table but you are the same Lord whose character is always to have mercy. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you uh, for these stories. I thank you for stories that shock us, that make us wrestle with the meaning of your gospel, your character as a merciful Lord. And I pray, Lord, that the surprise of the gospel would be a, a surprise for us again, that you've included us, Gentiles, that you've invited us to your table and that you've given us the mission to invite others to that table. Help us to be that people as St. Bart's. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.